I was in Chicago last week with my son Benjamin, who turned 11 while we were there. There he is. And uh, for his birthday, we had a couple of days sightseeing in the city. And we did all of the touristy things, uh, like going up the Sears Tower. Uh, Yeah, there it is. Uh, It's now officially called the Willis Tower because Sears moved out of it. But I doubt anyone outside Chicago will ever stop calling it the Sears Tower. Um, So it's 1,450 feet tall. It wore the crown as the world's tallest building until 1998, when it was beaten by the Petronas Towers in Kuala Lumpur, which I've also seen. Um, And uh, after that, it was still America's tallest building uh, until 2013, when it was beaten by the new One World Trade Center in New York. So Sears Tower no longer holds any records, but it's still pretty magnificent. And it has an observation uh, level on the 103rd floor called the Sky Deck. Um, And you can take a one-minute elevator ride all the way up there while your ears go pop. Yeah, hold out on that picture a sec. Come back, come back a little. Um, And uh, when the elevator doors open, you're standing higher than the Eiffel Tower and higher than the Great Pyramid of Giza. And all of Chicago and Lake Michigan is laid out below you. And it's really something. Um, So now up on the sky deck in the Sears Tower, they've got these new viewing boxes that they call the ledge. And they're glass boxes that stick out from the side of the building on the 103rd floor. And they're all glass. They're glass walls and glass ceiling and glass floor. And you can walk out into them and feel like you're floating 1,300 feet over the city streets. And I have to be honest with you, that was really hard for me. (laughs) It took a lot of effort. I'm an engineer by training, and the engineering side of my brain told me it was fine. It's fine, John. These things have been designed by professionals using modern techniques and enormous safety factors. So I should just relax and enjoy the view. But the lizard part of my brain was going crazy. Um, So while we were standing in line waiting for our turn to go out onto the ledge, Benjamin turned to me and he asked me, Daddy, is it safe? And I told him, of course it's safe. This was designed by professionals and thousands of people have done it before you and you can see them in there right now jumping around and having a good time. I'm sure you could put an elephant in there and it still wouldn't fall. Um, And that satisfied him, and Benjamin happily went out onto the ledge when his turn came. So now you can put up the next one. Here he is on the ledge in the Sears Tower, sitting on nothing but glass. So this, then, I think is a great picture of a boy who had faith. Because Benjamin put his faith in me, in what I told him. Benjamin doesn't have an engineering degree. He didn't know if it was going to hold up. So he asked me, and I told him. And then he saw for himself that it worked for other people, and then he trusted me. And he took action. He He took action. He stepped out into the box, and he entrusted his body and his life to what I told him. And that was an act of faith. All right? So today we're going to be talking about faith and asking, do we have this kind of of faith in God. Because it's not enough just to say that we believe him, or even enough to teach it to other people. Faith is much more than that. Faith is when we step out onto the ledge and entrust our very lives to what God has said. So my challenge for us is, do we have faith like that? 
So please turn with me to Acts chapter 28, which is on page 934? 37. 37, 937 of the Church Bibles. Acts chapter 28. And we're going to start at verse 11. So um, you might wonder if there's been a, you know, a sudden time lapse and you've uh, missed church for a month. Uh, we've actually skipped a lot of verses in Acts. So last week, Taylor was uh, preaching back in Acts 21, is that right? Um, and uh, we've now skipped six chapters, uh, six chapters that detail a very long and tiresome journey that Paul made under arrest from Jerusalem to Rome. So back in Jerusalem, Paul stood trial before the Jewish council, and then before the Roman tribune, and then before Governor Felix, and then two years later before Governor Festus, and then before King Agrippa and Queen Bernice. And so he had this endless period of trials, um, and he was during that period of trials, he called on his right as a Roman citizen to appeal his case to Caesar. And so he was finally dispatched to Rome in chains on a ship. And while they were on the ship, there was a big storm and they were all shipwrecked and they had to swim for their lives and they ended up on the island of Malta and they were marooned there for the winter until they could get a boat off again. Uh, and while they were on Malta, Paul was bitten by a poisonous snake and he survived. Uh, so all that's happened uh, since last week when Taylor preached to us. Um, uh, but now we're going to cut to the chase and arrive at the point where they finally get to Rome. So uh, Luke reports this moment in verse 14, the happy words, and so we came to Rome. And uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful moment because Paul had been wanting to get there for so many years. It's a great big milestone that he made it to Rome. And as we arrive in this point in the story, we at Incarnation are also coming to the end of a long journey, a journey that's taken us almost three years. Because about three years ago, in the summer of 2015, we started preaching our way through the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts. And this was a goal that Taylor had in mind for us before we even moved to Tallahassee to plant this church, that he wanted our first sermon series here to cover the writings of Luke, Luke's Gospel and the Book of Acts. So we began that work shortly after we launched back in 2015, and today we complete the task that we set out to do as Paul arrives in Rome. And it's such an unusual feeling for me to finish something. <laughs> um, <coughs> so uh, as we come to the end of this journey together, we can look back over the whole thing and see that Luke had a clear purpose in his writings. In writing his gospel and writing the book of Acts, he had a purpose. And that purpose was to produce a response of faith. He wanted to produce faith in anyone who read his works. So that was his main goal, to produce and strengthen faith in his readers. So right at the beginning of his gospel, when we first started, we read the words that Luke wrote when he said, I write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. And then here, right at the end of the book of Acts, how does Luke end his whole narrative? He ends it with Paul appealing to the Jewish leaders in Rome for a response of faith. And then finally with this closing sentence, that he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So this is the fitting end to the narrative. The screen fades to black 
with Paul still doing the work he had given his life to do. And the same work that Luke himself had also been doing by, uh, by writing. So as we read this, it might seem like an abrupt end to the story, like the ending's missing, because we want to know what happened to Paul and what happened to Luke. And the best historical records we have suggest that Paul was eventually released at the end of this two years under house arrest in Rome, and then he lived another two years uh, continuing his work of gospel ministry before he was arrested and finally beheaded by Nero. So we don't get that part of the story in Acts. Um, And Luke himself also outlived Paul by several more years. So why didn't Luke finish the story? And the answer is that he did. He finished the story that he was telling. Because he wasn't telling Paul's story or even his own story. The story he was telling was the story of how the message of salvation through Jesus came to earth and how that gospel message spread from Jerusalem to Judea and then to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And that story, the story that Luke was really telling, reaches a satisfying and glorious final chord at the end of Acts 28. As we watch Paul teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ in Rome, in the capital of the known world, boldly and without hindrance. So the whole of Luke and Acts is given to us for our faith. Not primarily our historical curiosity, or our intellectual satisfaction, or even for our enjoyment, although it does give us all those things, but Luke wrote his two books for our faith. Faith is the most valuable commodity in our spiritual lives. Because we're saved by faith, by the grace of God through faith in his son Jesus. And we also grow up into our new life in God through faith. And on top of all that, we invite the power of God, his miraculous power into our lives through faith. So faith is very precious. And faith is the gift that Luke most wants to give us all along. So here in Acts 28, both Luke and Paul make one last big push for faith as Paul addresses the uh, Jewish elders. So there's three things I want to talk about on the subject of faith today. Uh, First, what is the right thing to believe in? What is the right object of our faith? Um, Second, what should I do if I can't find faith? And the third is, what's the next step once I do find it? So first, what's the right thing to believe in? In other words, what's the right object of my faith? Because faith needs an object, right? It can't exist all by itself, just like trust or love. Uh, I can't just trust in abstract by itself. I can only trust someone. And I can't just love uh, by itself. I can only love someone or, or something. And similarly, I can't merely have faith. There's no such thing as faith in the abstract. There's only faith in something or in someone. So we find the object of Paul's faith in verse 23. He spent his time, Luke says, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus. The kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus. So yes, we need to put our faith in God But when we say that, we mean a whole lot more than just merely believing that God exists, right? Uh, Paul never had to convince anyone that God existed, because all the Jews and Greeks he ever met knew that already. Um, So we do need to believe that God exists, but we don't need faith for that. We only really need honesty. 
God is a realization our hearts come to on their own if we only let them. We believed it when we were children. And if we clear away all that intellectual junk we've accumulated since then and ask our hearts honestly, there he is all the time. We find him. Uh, If we doubt, then at some point we've welcomed the doubt because it's convenient and because it gives us a reasonable excuse to do what we want. But if we're honest about that, the doubt loses its power. So the object of our faith isn't merely that God exists, nor even that Jesus of Nazareth existed. That's just history. And none of Paul's audience doubted that either. The thing that Paul held out to them and now holds out to us to be believed is this. It's the message that God came for me. God came for me. That's a message that's powerful and practical and personal. It's the message that Paul and Luke both gave their lives to share and that Paul labored to get across to the Jewish elders in Rome. Verse 23 says, He patiently went through it with them, step by step, from morning till evening, going painstakingly through the law of Moses and from the prophets. And you can bet that there were hundreds of questions that he answered as he engaged with them. Um, And the, the message he wanted to get across, the conclusion about Jesus was that God has come for us. So Jesus was God in the flesh, the God who designed and built the earth. He was born into his own world and he came for our sake to find us and to forgive us and to heal us because we needed to be healed. And it wasn't just practical, it was personal. He did it because he loved us. God came for me. That's what Paul spent all day explaining to them. And he would have showed them the same things that Luke shows us in his gospel. Like that Jesus was a wise man, an amazing teacher who taught amazing things with authority. And that he was a powerful man who could heal people and calm storms and walk on water. And that he was a good man who cared about cripples and lepers and tax collectors and children and poor widows who saw them and helped them and expected nothing from them in return. And who on top of all these things claimed himself to be God, to be divine. That he could forgive sin. That he was alive before Abraham. That the Old Testament scriptures were talking about him. And that he was the only person who could lead them home to God. And when you look at Jesus and you put all this together, along with all the parts of Moses and the prophets that describe Jesus' life in detail, we recognize Jesus as the God who created us. And then we see that his purpose in coming was to save people and meet their need so that we come to this life-changing realization that God came for me. God came for me. That's the object of our faith. So I went through that very quickly, summarizing three years of preaching through Luke and Acts. But even after Paul spent all day explaining it to those Jewish elders, only some of them believed it. So verse 24 said, others disbelieved and they left. They didn't want to hear anymore. So our second question is, what should I do if I can't find faith? Maybe you're here this morning and you're struggling to have faith, struggling to believe that God really came for you. Maybe it sounds like a message you'd like to believe, but you can't accept it in your heart. So you feel like you want faith, but you can't find it. 
But there's a few things to say about that. Maybe you just need more time. If all of this is very new to you, then there's so much to explain than I have, so much more to explain than I have time to share in one 25-minute sermon. So talk to us. Come talk to me and to Taylor if you want to hear more. We love going through this stuff with you. And we'll answer any questions that you want to ask. But if you have heard and understand the message and still don't believe it, there's a second possibility. And that's that you're actually resisting the truth. Because that's what was happening with those Jewish elders who doubted. And Paul's parting shot as they were walking out the door was to challenge them that they didn't believe because their ears and their eyes weren't working properly. That years of wrong thinking had made their senses dull. So he quoted from Isaiah in verse 27 and he says, For this people's heart has grown dull and with their ears they can barely hear and their eyes they have closed lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. So if you feel that you can't see what's being shown to you or understand what's being told you, it could be a problem with your own eyes and your own ears. And if you feel that that's the case, then you can ask God to open your eyes and unstop your ears. That's a prayer he loves to answer. But until he does answer it, don't stop pestering him. Don't leave like those Jewish elders did. So don't just knock on the door once and then leave because there's no answer. Keep knocking. Because I think there's a third possibility if you can't find faith, and that is that God just hasn't opened the door to you yet. So when I was a teenager, I loved the movie Fight Club. It was a movie with uh, Brad Pitt and uh, Edward Norton. And a couple of months ago, uh, my book club read the book that the movie is based on, uh, called Fight Club, by Chuck Palahniuk. Um, and uh, so I got to revisit this story that I loved as a teenager. Um, and the story follows this big, charismatic guy called Tyler Durden. Uh, and he wants to shake the world up and set it free. And so what he does is he starts by setting up uh, all these fight clubs around the city. Uh, they meet in secret in the dead of night. And the first rule of Fight Club is that you don't talk about Fight Club. Uh, but the idea is basically that ordinary men, uh, office workers and uh, just ordinary people, uh, meet together in the dead of night and beat each other up. Uh, beat each other to a pulp, actually. Uh, and uh, what happens is that in the novel is that all these men fall in love with Fight Club, and they find it to be this liberating and transformative experience. And so Tyler Durden becomes this influential leader of a small army. And he moves to the next phase of his plan to unravel society, which he calls Project Mayhem. Uh, and he invites men from all his fight clubs to show up at his front door and join a kind of homegrown militia. Um, but here's the really interesting part. Tyler gives instructions that everyone who shows up at his door be rejected, be turned away, and told that he isn't wanted. So Tyler gives instructions and says, uh, if the guy is young, tell him he's too young. If he's old, then he's too old. If he's fat, then he's too fat. If he's black, then he's too black. But turn everyone away. Tell them we don't want them. And if they're still on the doorstep in three days, they can come in. And I found that part of the story just fascinating because it says such a lot about desire and commitment. The people who were still there in three days of being rejected really, really wanted this. 
Now, Jesus is nothing like Tyler Durden, uh, and his methods of recruitment are totally different. But there's something in that kind of stubborn persistence that God wants to see. He's always liked it. Abraham and Moses answered him back, and Jacob wrestled with him, and Peter wouldn't leave Jesus' side when other people were leaving, because where else would we go, Lord? You alone have words of eternal life. So if you feel like you're earnestly knocking on the door of heaven, but it's still closed to you, then keep knocking. There's nowhere else to go, and you need this. So decide you're just going to camp out on the doorstep until the door opens, however long that takes. Because God promises that he will open the door. Not right away, maybe, but he is going to. So listen again to that promise in Jeremiah 29, verse 13. God says to his people, you will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, says the Lord. And listen to what Jesus said. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Is that a solid promise of God? Is there any ambiguity to that promise? It's rock solid. Lean on it. Count on it. You might have to show that you're determined. That you're not leaving. But God promises that that door will be opened. You will not die before that door is opened. Before you find what you seek. You will receive faith. And you'll know for certain that God came for you. And that's news that changes everything. That news fills us with hope and the confidence that we're loved and that we matter. And it gives us this swell of courage and purpose. Because safe in the hand of God, we can dare mighty things. So our last question is, what's the next step once I find faith? And I said at the beginning that I never really doubted that the glass boxes at the Sears Tower could hold my weight. And I even told my son the same thing. But even knowing that, even being sure, it was still another thing entirely to act on it, to actually go out there. And that's the challenge for us who say we have faith, is not just to talk about it, but to act on it. Paul's faith that God came for him gave him the courage to take that same message all around the world and to stand up to all the hardships that came along the way. And that made Paul great. Paul was a great man, wasn't he? Just a really great man. Think about Rome at the time and all the tens of thousands of people who lived there. However many people lived in Rome at the time. Uh, and Paul was easily the greatest, right? I mean, the only challenger possibly is Caesar uh, in his palace being worshipped and served. But what did Caesar ever do for the world? I mean, really? He built a few monuments to himself. What did Paul do? Paul wrote letters that changed the course of history and that 2,000 years later are being read by 2 billion people in this world this morning. That's greatness. Paul was a great man. And that kind of greatness took a great leap of faith on Paul's part to trust God and step out into the lion's den for God's sake. 
So just like I told the children earlier, leaps of faith like that only come at the end of a thousand small steps of faith. We need to learn to make that kind of jump little by little. And it's possible that you're at the end of that process this morning and God is calling you to take the big jump to change the direction of your life, to take a brand new job, to start a new company, to go across the seas on the mission field or something. But if he's not, then you're in the getting ready period where he, what he wants from us are small steps of faithfulness in order to get our hearts ready to trust him for that kind of big leap. So let's take the steps that God says are safe. And here are some examples. God came for us and we believe that it's safe now to confess our sins. It's safe because they're covered by the blood of Jesus and they can be forgiven. So are we putting that to the test by confessing our own sins to God and to one another, determining that nothing is going to be kept hidden in the darkness? God came for us and we believe that it's safe now to forgive our enemies. It's safe even when people harm us terribly, because the God who loves us will deal with them justly. So are we putting that to the test by forgiving our own enemies? God came for us, and we believe that our true life now is found in holiness, in keeping in step with the Spirit, not in continuing to gratify the sinful desires of our flesh. So are we putting that to the test by killing sin and pursuing holiness? God came for us and we believe it's safe to offer him our money and our time because they belong to him anyway and we can trust him to provide whatever we need. So are we putting that to the test by giving him a portion of our money and a portion of our time, a Sabbath day of rest and giving those portions regularly and gladly to him? God came for us and we believe that the safest place on earth is the very center of his will. So are we putting that to the test by doing what he tells us, even if it seems scary? There's always going to be that lizard part of your brain that freaks out. It's always going to be there. However much you reason with it and tell it that everything's fine, it's never going to want to step out onto a piece of glass 1,300 feet above the streets of Chicago. So you just have to not listen to the lizard. Down at Wakulla Springs State Park, they have this high diving board where you can jump into the springs. And the water's very deep there, and there's no chance of hitting anything. But when you're up there standing on the high diving board, it looks very high. And if you go on a busy day, there's usually a crowd of people up there who aren't sure if they really want to jump. And they do this, they step up to the edge, and they stand there for a while... And then they lose their nerve and they step back for a while. And then a few minutes later, they go back and they try again. And you can almost hear them arguing with the lizard. But those people just often never end up jumping. You watch them for half an hour and then down they come down the stairs. You can't think too hard about it. You can't listen to the lizard. You just decide before you're even up there that you're going to do it. And then you just do it. Don't think about it. And it's the same if God's telling you to do something. Whatever it is, if you know God's telling you to do it, then, and you know it's right, because God came for you, you're probably also hearing that voice of the lizard freaking out and telling you that it's scary. But just do it. 
Don't think about it too hard. If it's between God and the lizard, choose God and do it quickly before, God, before the lizard steals your nerve. Because if we get into the practice of that, then we'll really have the engine of faith up and running in our lives. And we'll be taking small steps toward a great faith and producing good in our lives and in the world. Amen.